What's up, designers, and welcome back to the Surviving the Cancel podcast. So you might have these ideas, these unpopular opinions in your head that you think can infinitely change people's lives. You're like, man, why is my son, my brother, my 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 mother a conservative, or why are they a liberal, or or why are they why are they you know, living in the status quo, essentially. Why do they like their nine to five? Entrepreneurship is infinitely better. You have all these ideas in your head that if you feel like if you can transmit them to their minds and also the minds of people in society, it will revolutionize their lives. But we always run into this barrier of not being able to communicate what it is that we're thinking, what it is that we know could make the difference for people. We can't, not only, not only can we not make people understand these ideas, but we can't make them die hard fans of these ideas. And that was something going along, continue along with this story that plagued me since I was younger, as I explained in part one through four. But also on top of that, at the forefront of it all was this materialistic journey, you know. So there's this deep subsidiary idea within me like, OK, I want to explain to people these principles that could change their lives and actually make their lives better. That was one of my desires and motivations when I first got to California. But. Uh, my greatest driving factor was, you know, the materialistic side of it all, you know, the actual achievement. I wanted recognition. I wanted money. I wanted freedom. I wanted things for myself. Um, but when I got to California for the first time, that was kind of tested. And uh, going on to this next leg of the series, how to properly build a cult-like attention around your unpopular opinion in the cancel culture era. I want to talk a little bit about that. And so, whereas you heard in the last podcast, so podcast episode, I got a few sales um, as a ghostwriter. That was pretty cool. Um, I got a, my first one grand sale and moved across the country, but that wasn't really where my trouble had actually ended. When we first got here, in an attempt to survive uh, and not be on the streets until we fly home on uh, December twenty third, we went from Airbnb to Airbnb to Airbnb to Airbnb. So where we first started was, like I said, this little Spanish house. We stayed in a guest house in like a backyard um, up in Glendale. And um, that was a beautiful time getting to California for the first time. I remember just every morning my girlfriend would go to school and um, I would go outside and just look at the palm trees and just look at the mountains. You know, sometimes they'd be covered in snow, but living in like Maryland, Maryland is the flattest place, but you won't see like straight up mountains like you do out here. So I'm just looking at the mountains, looking at the street and, you know, even sitting in a car sometimes and realize I don't have to look over my shoulder because it's a lot calmer here than where I grew up. Being in California for the first time was a surreal experience. Even in December, January, February, feeling like the weather outside, like, oh, it's pretty warm, was absolutely surreal. Like, this landscape is stunning. You know, I say sometimes to myself that California, as opposed to other states in the United States, contrary to what many people believe, is the only first world country in the world. <laughs> I think it's a beautiful place. Even the personalities of the people when we originally got here were a lot more lighthearted than what we experienced back where we were from. And man, you know, even the quality of life, I feel like, you know, your paradigm, you know, is created largely by your environment. You know, you look around and what do you see when you grow up in Baltimore, Maryland? You see... You know, all the same stuff everyone that's impoverished everywhere sees. You see people that, you know, are, you know, have beat up cars and small houses and beat down mentality and they work nine to fives and they don't dream. When I came over here for the first time and I 
I remember walking through one neighborhood in Glendale and looking up at the palm trees and looking around at the cars. And I seen this one garbage truck that uh, was picking up trash cans like automatically. There were no garbage men on the back of this truck. And it was it blew my mind the technological advancement this place had. But beyond that, I remember looking at that garbage truck and being impressed and then walking up the street and then walking back down. And on my way back down, it was like a, a blue Rolls Royce drove straight past me. I was like, what the hell? That was a Rolls Royce. Like, that was one of the first times in my life I had seen a Rolls Royce. Living back in Maryland, I probably seen maybe one or two Lamborghinis my entire life. Uh, in moving to California, one of the biggest differences was I would see a Rolls Royce, a Bentley, a Lamborghini, a McLaren almost every single day, depending on where I would go. You know, I would go out and see people living in luxury and million dollar homes every single day. Whereas people at home live with an attitude of despair. People here live with an attitude of hope. And I feel like their paradigm was formed by living around people who had already accomplished it and seeing it was possible. So it was a mind-blowing experience when we first got here. But uh, that's, that's, that's a little off of the main track. You know, I want to kind of speed up this episode a little bit for y'all. Um, so first got here what I, what, I, what I was going on to explain was that our money problems aren't weren't really solved even though I got that big sale um, because I had broken it up for the client in terms of pay, in payment plans and so I'd get like 250 every week but the payment plan was also staggered sometimes so maybe it'd be two or three weeks maybe she told me to hold off before charging or wait or, or whatever it may be and so as I say when I got in that first Airbnb it was a, a big trouble of you know, okay, when's the next sale coming? When's the next bit of money coming? Uh, are you going to do this job good? Is she going to ask for a refund? Like, all these questions are going through our mind. And, uh, you know, in, you know, as a theme throughout all the Airbnbs we went to, we went to four total. Um, it, 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 was, uh, it was hustle every single day. I was either writing for her, this, this, this client I had from Colorado, and uh, submitting and resubmitting, or I was trying to get the how to get clients course for for freelance writers off the ground and essentially one of the biggest themes was doing interviews with the writers and doing you know over the phone and doing other phone calls with with freelance writers to get them to sell into my course so essentially I was just picking up the phone and putting it all day in a fit of desperation in order to get some money going so that we could actually you know and I, when we were still in our first Airbnb there was large doubts about being able to afford the fourth Airbnb um, so you know, that's essentially what it was. But, the, you know, the attitude and the weather in, of California was stunning all the way. Uh, you know, there were some, you know, letdowns, obviously. Uh, but, it, but you know, seeing the Hollywood Walk of Fame and all that, even for the first time, even though it's not the most beautiful thing in the world, was, was, was wild. I mean, I remember one day even pulling through the mountains of the street, driving through, I, I suppose it would be the Malibu Canyon. I don't really know. But it's this canyon, it's this long, windy road in between these huge mountains. And you don't know where you're going, you're just, we're just following the trail. And then on the other side, you know, we burst out of the mountains and we're looking at Malibu Beach, this beach we've seen in the movies all our lives. And I'm like, wow, like, the water's green, cerulean, I don't even know what that word means, but I want to use it. Um, clear, beautiful. Um, even while we were here, this was a, a while later, we seen, you know, the bioluminescent waves. Like, it's been a magical place. Um, but that first Airbnb and those experiences going from Airbnb to Airbnb were pretty rough. 
And so the first Airbnb, like I said, man, I talked to people from so many different places. I talked to a lady in Nevada who was retired. I talked to a guy in Louisiana. I talked to multiple people that were in India and overseas and in Africa. Um, it was this one young lady, Apurinjit, I think her name was. And she was applying for like, she was trying to make up enough money to go to law school. And, you know, I think freelance writing honestly was one of the ways that she could have done that. I was talking to her and she tried to send a sale through. There were a lot of errors along the way too. She tried to send the money through when it was banked, you know, blocked by her bank accounts because international sales are kind of tricky. Um, it was a wildfire. And, you know, I remember being tense and on edge, you know, in the moments where it wasn't clarity forced by the beauty around me. I remember being tense and being on edge and being nervous and having, you know, not know what was going to happen and, and kind of just really emotionally just being all over the place, being in a complete panic. Um, unbeknownst to me partially, but being in a complete panic and being, being nervous about what life could be. Like, are we going to starve? Are we going to go on the streets? Are we going to be homeless? Are we going to, you know, um, but long story short, you know, not much happened in that first Airbnb, just a bunch of work and doing calls with the two writing clients I had. Um, from there, we moved to the next Airbnb, which was, I believe, the Burlington is what it was called. And I remember the Burlington was the first place we actually approached in the city. I think the Burlington is on Third Street or something like that, but it's on the outskirts of the city of L.A. Like if you stand on the back porch of the Burlington, you can literally see actually a great view of the city. Um, but I remember pulling up to the Burlington for the first time, driving up Alvarado Street and such. And um, that was the first time we had actually encountered the climate of the city of L.A. I'd never been to the city of L.A. Uh, to that day. And even then we were on the outskirts of the city, but we were pulling under the bridge that one day. And we live even further in the city now, but we were pulling under the bridge that one day. And I remember seeing tents everywhere and homeless people. And I'm like, what is going on in the city? That was the first time we were exposed to the underbelly of Los Angeles. We we're looking at these homeless people in these tents like, where the fuck are we going? Like, I was like nervous. Like, okay, like, you know, uh, we pulled through a series of neighborhoods and pulled up in front of this house. Like, and what we was like, okay, this is kind of like the hood, like in Burlington. And uh, it was a bunch of people outside. There were so many people on the streets just going back and forth and working stands. And it was the population was exploding in this one area. And they were all out and all walking around. And it was just, you know, my mind being somebody that's from across the country in a, in a condition that was like, you know, you don't really want to deal with too many people. It was like sending off so many warning signals, you know, you know, black people don't trust strangers. And what they say. No, it was a Kendrick line. He said, Un unfamiliar faces make unfamiliar faces make niggas nervous. Uh, and so it was a lot of that going on. But and I remember pulling up to the Burlington and, uh, you know, just feeling like, damn, like, what are we going? Like, what are we doing? Like, even looking up that looking at the place, you know, from the outside was like, man, what the hell is this place? Like, they, damn, they really they really duped us. Um, you can look this place up on Airbnb, the Burlington. I suggest you do um, because of what I'm about to tell you about this place. Um you know, my girlfriend was really nervous. She she really didn't like the location. She didn't like, you know, this stuff out on the street. But one particular, one persistent theme that I noticed even, you know, when we moved into the Burlington for that week that we did was uh, while it was so many people outside, the energy was 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 friendly. The energy was beautiful. The people with kids were running around, walking from school, coming up the street. This was just before COVID. So the energy was like, 
it was nice, you know, and, and, and that kind of like helped me a little bit with the situation. I realized, oh, these aren't bad people. These are just uh, a bunch of people that happen to live in the same area. And the area just looks dirty because I guess it's a city. Um, not as dirty as where, you know, I came from, but, you know, it looks pretty wild. You know, but the homeless people, I guess, set off the whole theme. And so we judged the entire collective. But uh, long story short, we drove around the Burlington a few times because we couldn't figure out where to park. And eventually we parked in the backyard where we were supposed to park. We figured that out and actually went into the building. The Burlington was, I think, for the both of us, the our favorite Airbnb. It was it was it was one of the best places we stayed. We walked in the building. It was clean and it was beautiful. And there were these long white hallways. There were two floors in the building with uh rooms on both floors and you know uh separating the two floors it wasn't really a floor it was like a a a catwalk i guess you would call it um you know you would go up the stairs on the side and you would be on the top floor but the top floor was like you know a balcony if you will a balcony that went all the way down on both sides and had bridges in between that connected to two places and so there were these square holes in you know in the top level where you can just look down at the bottom floor there was chandelier it was high white everything was white high white ceilings i think literally the floor was like a like a like a like a pale blue um but you can look up and see these big white chandeliers and you know the place was magical the place was absolutely magical it was secure it had multiple locks on the front gate on the front door and we had these passwords for them and like I said, they had the back deck. Even they had a back balcony on the second floor where you can go out and just look at the city and sit down and talk and eat and drink and all those types of things. Um, it was like a slice of that area that was different from the entire area. It was like a slice out of heaven. And so our room was uh, on the far front of the building. And we had we went in the room and like it had this nice glass shower, you know, and this tall ceiling. The ceiling was unimaginably tall. White room, white curtains, nice clean bed. It had this little, uh, you know, the hot plate. And the hot plate would cook fast as all hell. Um, you know, but uh, long story short about that place, man. They had this, this window off to the right side of the bed on the front of the building that faced the sunset and I was just sitting there when my girlfriend was at school and I would just watch the sunset every day and talk to clients on the phone and just try to get the whole thing together it was a it was you know interview clients and it was it was I remember talking to one of my clients Johnny on the phone one of these days the sunset was going down it was a nice and blue streak across the horizon it was getting dark and we was doing this interview and we were just talking and vibing and having a good time that place was a good place that place was a good time unimaginably so nice clean beautiful it had this uh shopping place down the street and you know we got a bunch of cheap stuff from there to be able to eat and, and persist and you know that place kind of gave me a lot of it got a lot of momentum it was it was a great place it really was i enjoyed it a lot but the hunt continued and most of the anxiety continued through that airbnb because the money that we had was you know depleting day by day um, the next Airbnb we went to was not an Airbnb at all. It was actually a motel called the Glen Capri Motel in Glendale. And the Glen Capri Motel was, oh man, one thing I like about a hotel or, or any place that you might visit is, you know, uh, a nice shower. So their showers, man, they had these nice marble walls with different designs, you know, and, and a rain shower head, glass. The whole thing was glass. 
uh, on the front. They had a lot of beautiful, beautiful showers in that place. Their rooms were nice, and they had lights under the bed. You know, when the lights like kind of float, the bed kind of float off the ground, and they got lights under it. And they had lights on the back wall, and you know, two lamps that came over the headboard of the bed so that you could put a you know a light on your book if you're reading before you sleep. Um, the Glen Capri was a place where we had went because it was low in price, and uh, uh, and um. It, it was a nice place. It was such a nice place. Um, unfortunately, the first room that we were in, um, you know what I'm saying? First off, the walls are, you know, finished. And so, not to any detriment to them, I, you know, it, I didn't really care too much. We could hear, like, sex through the walls and things like that. But, you know, uh, the, the, the bathroom was amazing. It was gorgeous. But, unfortunately, our bathroom, you know, the first bathroom we actually moved into flooded and there was like water coming under the walls and so they moved us into a room upstairs that had an even bigger room and an even bigger shower and the backdrop was like some red splatters of paint and it was it was a nice a nice room i really enjoyed the Glen capri and uh you know alongside enjoying that you know we went down for breakfast uh one day or i don't i don't even know if it was that day but right outside the Glen capri we discovered what would come to be our favorite, one of our favorite place places like in all of LA to eat. Like this place is amazing. The place is called Cafe Corner Bistro. Cafe Corner Bistro. And if you come to Los Angeles, it's not an ad. They're not paying me to say this. They don't even know I'm saying this. If you come to Los Angeles, what you want to do is you want to go to the Cafe Corner Bistro. It's at six uh, sixty-seven twenty. San Fernando Road in Glendale and uh man I tell you what their French toast I think it's their Captain Crunch French toast super French toast or something like that is is unparalleled there's you know there's nothing from that restaurant that is replicable anywhere else it is a beautiful restaurant you know everything will be done in 10 minutes pretty much flat every single time consistently and they will make sure they get you all your utensils and all your sauces and everything and the customer service and, and the politeness that you'll be greeted with is unparalleled it is it is a it is a it is a shining example of what is los angeles at its height these people in there are angels they're heaven sent and their food is heaven sent and, and the whole restaurant uh is 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 one of the most amazing i've been to i really appreciate them you know, the only other restaurant that was that I can think off head that was that, that had that impact on me was STK in Miami. And they had the food done like before I even got there almost like damn near they were so fast. And the food was I didn't know food could taste as good as that restaurant could. But these people are right on par. These people are are amazing over there, man. But uh enough about the Cafe Corner Bistro. You can tell I'm a food person, they got some nice bacon too. Lord. But uh yeah, that was the experience at the Glen Capri. I remember one day just walking out because I was still like, I had only been in LA for like two weeks and a half at that point. I remember walking or something like that. I remember walking out on the balcony for that and looking across at the mountains in Glendale, like these green slopes and just some of the mountains are barren and, 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 and they have like a Mars element to them. But these mountains were like a green slope with like grass, looked like Donnie Darko or something like crazy crazy stuff like the dopamine in my head was just going crazy from man in los angeles and walking up to that glendale galleria mall no it was the burbank town center through like the 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 part of the city that had like evergreens going up and down the street and and it was supercars and things everywhere you know la is like you know being in tron sometimes you know crazy 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 it's like being in tron uh 
Uh, from there, we moved to our final Airbnb, um, which was someplace that I don't even know, but it was the best, one, probably one of the best, it wasn't the best better in Berlin, but it was a great Airbnb because it had the washer and dryer and a Target up the street. Um, I don't really have much else, to, much to say about that place. It was uh, like in somebody's guest suite, but it was attached to their house. Like they didn't have like a door that went into their house, but they, like, they had two front doors. So it was completely separate from the house, but it was kind of attached to the house. And, um, one of my fondest memories from actually the Glen Capri was I remember sitting watching, I'm a wrestler, so I remember watching the story of Rulon Gardner on the TV and how he was trapped in like the frozen wilderness and how he lost his toes and, he, you know, he couldn't get his, he got his, um, jet ski, his snow ski or whatever you call it, stuck in the water and he couldn't get it out and he was freezing to death and all sorts of stuff and, you know, just out in like the Siberian blizzard or something, even though he wasn't in Siberia, you get the point amazing story amazing guy um i know i'm kind of like going on and on and on but uh you know if you want to hear you know the point of how to how to build a social business man you just want to go to surviving the cancel.com on april 10th that date might change but right now it's april 10th registration for that free virtual summit will only be open for 48 hours and then it's done you won't get to hear from these business leaders these billionaires um cult and business leaders you you won't you know how to build a social you won't be able to hear that um so surviving the cancel.com on april 10th you do not want to miss this it's absolutely free to register um but yeah so that was the experience and uh eventually we just got you know it was december 23rd came around we flew home and it was surreal actually getting home for the first time but i'm not going to go into much into the details of going home because you know for the sake of, you know, extending this podcast episode to two hours or more. But, um, so we go home and, uh, we stay there for a few weeks. Uh, saw all my friends and everything, which was the last time I actually seen them. And I flew, we flew back out here on January 6th of 2020. And so, uh, we stayed at one last place, the, you know, the Ramada hotel, uh, up there in Glendale. That's also in Glendale or it's in Burbank. And uh, we stayed at the you know the Ramada Hotel for a little bit, and then from the Ramada, we were due to move into the apartment that we had um, actually locked in. Um, the day actually we were supposed to move into the apartment, the leasing office would be out of that place at five, and uh, so we had to race to get there. You know, my girlfriend got off school at a particular time, and we were racing to get off. You know, get you know. Um, get to the actual leasing office before it closed long story short the leasing office closed that day before we got there and we weren't able to move in and what happened as a result is you know we didn't have any money at that point we were dead broke and so you know i believe i was probably still somewhere in the negative teetering with this bank account situation but we went to the ramada hotel and uh, no we we went to uh the place you know the apartment and then we had to go to a hotel and we didn't have any money and no one was able to send us money because the Venmo's and cash apps and stuff like that wasn't working at that point in time. Uh, cause it was like late at night and the banks were rejecting and you can't call the banks cause it's the middle of the night. And we went to this place called the sportsman lounge and you know, you had to have the card you ordered with and it was just a disaster. And then, so we ended up, you know, we thought we wanted to sleep in the car. We went to this, uh, super motel six, super hotel, super six or motel or whatever the hell you call it in Hollywood. Uh, it was like $63 or something like that. And that was one of the toughest nights of my life, man. Because it was like, 
I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what was going to have to be done. And me and my girlfriend ended up, which was really her, splitting the price of this hotel. Like, we were standing in the lobby of this hotel and, like, splitting the price of this hotel over, like, four or five or six different debit and credit cards. If they didn't allow us to split the total of this thing, like, it wouldn't have worked. Like, we would have been sleeping in the car or something like that for the night. But we were able to split the bill over five, six different credit cards, you know, because... We didn't have any money on one card and we couldn't transfer anything. And it was just, and we didn't have any money at all. And we ended up getting this one small room for the night. And then we were able to actually move into the apartment that we leased uh, the next day. And this is where stability kind of kicks in because we had two months free rent when we first moved in. And so immediately we had two months free rent. We would uh, go on to decide on delivery driving to actually make money. And I also had money coming in from the ghost riding thing and so here's where things kind of took like a weird turn okay because it was for the first time it was stable it was like you had went through the storm and there was so much rife and strife and rife there was so much strife and and and, and struggle and grit and determination and so many obstacles to overcome and then you break into this moment of silence and it was between there and a Ramada hotel that my mind started to make a change like I started to like my paradigm had started to shake and shift you know um you know I had always wanted all my life you know to be the one you know I always wanted to be the one to be to be the one to lead a business to be the one that's recognized to be the one that's that has the prestige and the clout to be the one that that did it all on his own you know to to, I don't know, like I just wanted to be the one. I wanted the business of my life. I wanted freedom of my life. I wanted riches of my life. And, you know, that's all like I ever wanted. I wanted to say I did it off my own intelligence. I did it off my own strength. It was somewhere back at the Ramada, though. I had realized something when I was walking down the street. My girlfriend was at work that one day, and I was walking down the street from the 7 Eleven. And I had just purchased some Doritos and uh, I think double stuffed Oreos from, I believe, like a $20 bill my girlfriend's grandmother had given me for Christmas. And that was all the money I had. And I remember purchasing that and walking down the street just thinking I was listening to Save Me by Boogie off, of, I think, the Reach album. And I was just bumping that song and just thinking about my life and thinking about everything that's led up to this point i'm just thinking about how fortunate i am like to this point in my life like everything i'm wearing is something that either my girlfriend or my her mother had bought me throughout time because i stopped buying clothes and obviously my parents don't buy clothes for me because i'm grown i'm an adult um uh, supposedly an adult whatever that means um even the phone my girlfriend had, i had in my hand my girlfriend had bought me that for my 21st birthday it was an iphone 8 um this hotel that we were in she was paying for it you know, the car, it was her car, it was her gas. And I started thinking about how thankful and appreciative I was that everything in my life, like people in my life had come together, uh, even if indirectly, it wasn't necessarily for me, it was more so for her. But even in some ways, like with my parents raising me, like all these things helped me get to this moment in time where I'm alive and I'm healthy. And even if I don't know if I'm going to be able to lease this apartment and move into it, like, I think that's when I first got word of the lease. And I was like, okay, it's secure with security finally. Um, it was just a thankfulness when I was walking down that street, you know, looking at the more, it was a bright, bright morning. It was probably like 10 a.m. Like, you know, 
bright and sunny and cars driving by and it was a nice neighborhood in Glendale and people are outside and they're happy and I'm happy and I'm just like damn we have it all for the first time I just felt like man this is what I I remember when I was working at the Target man I wrote in a little notebook that I had you know that you know I would I would be living on the beach in Los Angeles I mean California living on the coastline with a big ass mansion and I wrote him writing that and 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 then it was like we're on our way you know we have a place in LA um and it wasn't due to my strength it wasn't due to my intelligence in it and it was a beautiful thing regardless and that you know that 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 kind of started to change my paradigm a little bit because I was in a competitive paradigm well I want to be the one to do it I want to beat them I want to get to it first and then I realized like you wanted to be so self-made but there's no one in reality that has ever been self-made because look at your the entirety of your life if you made a business and was successful right now how could you have gotten there if your parents didn't take care of you from zero to 22 how could you be there if your girlfriend's mother didn't take care of you when when she didn't have to or if your girlfriend didn't drive around and have a car or if no one paid for this hotel if no one fed you in these days where you didn't have anything you wouldn't even be alive anymore i realized that every effort in my life up until this point was successful except the business because i accepted not competition in the areas oh i want to be the one to pay for this house i'm living as a kid but through collaboration it was through a multitude of people coming together to assemble this dream and that's why everywhere in my life i lived and been able to clothe myself and able to eat myself they had been successes but business wasn't because i was competitive when it came to that i didn't want anybody to have a hand in that I wanted it to just be me and I wanted all the glory. I didn't want to split a share. or I wanted it to be all me. I wanted to say I did it. But even in terms of business, it was a moot point because everyone else vicariously had assembled the variables that, that served as the foundation that you build your business on in the first place. No one's self-made. Not a single person. And it started to make me realize I'm a failure in business because I'm selfish with business. I'm competitive for business when I should be collaborating you know what I'm saying not only collaborating with the people around me that will come to assemble this business but collaborating with my clients and customers and so this 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 paradigm shift comes from a competitive mindset where I wanted to beat everybody in the world to where I wanted to work and help with everybody in the world it, it you know one of the subsidiary one of the actually primary ideas that made up this collaborative mindset was switching from being you know self-preservation the scarcity mindset when it started to take hold in my mind was real and true empathy for the first time. You know, I realized, you know, what, what mattered the most about business is about solving problems for other people. It's not about prestige and ego for my own self. What does that do for anybody? You know, and also you haven't done it on your own, so you don't deserve that prestige and ego. I realized at that moment, like, like they say, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with a team. You had two choices in life. You can be the figurehead of a dimly lit movement, or you can be one face of many in a movement that is massive. And I realized the reason I struggled so long is because I hadn't decided to really make that change. You fight all your life, especially you, you know, that chip through your shoulders developed by these moments. That's why I call the podcast and in in the summit surviving the cancel. It's developed by these moments where you're canceled. So I'm, I'm, I'm at home and they kicked me out essentially because of the whole entrepreneurship thing. And, I, and I'm canceled. That's where surviving cancer came from because I was canceled. Not for doing anything bad, but for simply believing differently. And, um, you know, that develops a chip on your shoulder where 
every expression that comes from you, um, it, it's, it's like a kid, man. A kid can grow up under alcoholic parents and become an alcoholic. Or they can go grow up under alcoholic parents and decide to never do alcohol again. And a lot of people who survived the cancel, a lot of people who are deserters of the status quo, they live their lives, you know, still attached to that status quo in some way. They live their lives striving to destroy the people of the status quo that cancel them until they become one and the same because they survived the cancel. They want to cancel the people that cancel them. So they're cancelers in essence, or they live to actually appease the you know the people in the status quo and make their way back to you know back to uh you know um back in their graces you know and so you'll you know so this is an example of making your way back into their graces is like artists blow up from their unique insights and then they sell out and then they start making pop music or go they go mainstream you know you see artists do this all the time they work for you know the the love of the people in the status quo that they deserted in the first place um, or that deserted them in the first place. And so I think the difference, or, you know, the third option, I do want to cover this before I lay out this entire idea is that the third option is that you retain unique insights and you figure out how to make people understand them. You figure out how to build social movements under, you know, around your unpopular opinion. That's the third option. The first two options I think are ego driven. They're from a place of competitiveness. You want to compete. Oh, let's destroy the people who try to destroy me. You're competing against them. It's ego driven. Um, or if your ego, a lighter level of ego is like, okay, well, I want these people's loves. I want them to see me. I want them to appreciate me. I want them to know me. I want them to feel me. I want them to, you just, it's, you know what I'm saying? You want the ego. You want the validation from them. It's only at a place where you leave that competitive and self-serving mindset and go to collaborative and empathetic mindset. Do you realize, oh, my unique insights actually mean something to the world. They can change the world. And so I won't concede and trade these things that I know could help people for love. For myself because that's selfish that's ego driven i won't trade my unique insights that i think can really help people for my ego i won't destroy people rather than helping them because it helps my ego even if these people cancel me even if you love me i'll always make an effort to help and and, and 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 do for them you reach a point in your life and this is what i want to inspire that through this podcast is i want you to reach a point in your life where the scales are tipping and for the first time you care about society and other people and doing good for them more than yourself in totality. One of the campaigns for this podcast is whereas the world is loud but it's divisive, everyone's loud and they got an opinion, but they're divisive because they're either trying to destroy their competition or uh you know they're selling themselves out. I want people within this or selling themselves out essentially joining the status quo in the first place. I want, you know, uh and abandoning, you know, the people that are deserters of the status quo. I want people that are loud but they bring people closer you're loud with what you believe in but you structure your ideas and a message in a way that creates social movements around these unpopular opinions and people love and, and are changed by these things it that requires you to move from a you know competitive mindset to a more collaborative mindset empathetic that requires you to come across a point in your life where you actually care about everyone else more than yourself genuinely and so staying at the ramada hotel was the first time that actually happened to me um, and I remember just looking at my business and looking at the world and thinking like, okay, like I really want to make a change in this place. I can actually make a difference in this place. Um, and, 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 and just change my life, you know, to, you know, in, in totality, you know, and I think a lot of it was prompted by the fact that, you know, there was this one instance where 
me and Alexis, my girlfriend, were driving down Malibu Beach back to our apartment one day, and she just asked me, like, if you could get anything in the world, if you had unlimited cash or whatever the hell, what would you get? And I just thought to myself for a long time, like, what what would I get? And I couldn't come up with anything. And I just said, I don't, I don't really know. I don't think I'd get anything. It was the first, you know, part of my life where I stopped running, you know, it was the first part of my life where I feel like, okay, we have almost everything I could ever want. Apartment in L.A. I can go to the beach whenever I want. I'm free. It's quiet. It's peace. I have essentially all that anybody could ever dream of. Like, what? what is, I felt whole and satisfied and satiated for one of the first times. And I think that's a lot, you know, when you solve yourself and you accept yourself and you accept your situation uh, is where, you know, that empathetic mindset come from when you have everything for yourself that's when you can truly start caring for other people and i like to explain this with the model of the maslow's hierarchy of needs you know you know at the bottom of the pyramid there are all selfish reasons to the the hierarchy maslow's hierarchy needs is a a pyramid of human motivation okay and it dictates the you know the progression of your motivations in the direction that they'll take throughout time and so at the bottom of the pyramid there uh physiological needs like people are motivated if they don't have this they're motivated by food and water that's the first thing human beings are motivated by but once they satiate that motivation they go to the next tier of the pyramid they go up you have to satiate a level of the pyramid to ascend to the next one so the the above you know motivation is okay then they want safety needs they want shelter they want a place to stay they want financial security things like that but you notice these things aren't a statement on other people. These are completely selfish and self-motivated. But as you head even further up the pyramid, there is loving belonging. That's the next thing that people want. Notice that loving belonging, it implicates that you are have a recognition of other people, whereas safety needs only recognize other people as not as real people, but as threats. Uh, physiological needs is not a statement on other people at all. As you grow up the pyramid, you go more and more aware, in particular, about the needs of other people. You grow more and more empathetic. When you solve the problems that are happening in your own life, you start to branch out and realize other people have problems, too, that I want to solve, that I want to talk about, that I want to investigate. So at the top of the pyramid, there's self-transcendence, and it literally means to go beyond oneself. And I feel like throughout this journey, uh, you know, of chasing these material goods, you know, I, I came to a period where I was like getting money from this writing, getting money for this ghostwriting, getting money for this business. I was completely like satiated. You know, I had the business going. I had a $2,000 sale and I had a, probably another couple grand sale on the way. You know, I had this apartment that I was going to be able to pay for, even though it was still a struggle. I had the beach. I had a lay. I had this dream and it was completely intact. And I felt like I was reaching a place of self-mastery and then going on to self-transcendence. And, you know, the, you know, empathetic paradigm was something that I, you know, really came across at that moment in time and started to look and investigate and care about other people in life. The scale started to tip where more other people were more important than I was. And uh, interestingly, I think that's where the function of business comes from. Business is to solve a problem for other people. But that requires empathy because you have to investigate. You have to become more investigative of things beyond yourself. If you just want money, if you just want fame, if you just want this, then business is to solve your problem for you. But the function of business is to solve other people's problem, you see? So it's kind of contradictory. And that's why I feel like for years and years and years, business was not something that worked for me because it was all about vanity. Um, as a, you know, it, it just literally like, how can you think about only you and be investigative about the particulars of someone else's issue to the degree to which you can solve them and profit from it in the first place? 
it requires you to branch out of yourself, requires you to be conscious of the world that exists beyond your own phaneron. Um, but, uh, what happened when I first, and this is all documented on this podcast, we're coming into the era where the podcast was actually being recorded. So you can go back to episode one. This is literally where episode one kind of starts, but, um, that shift in empathy, you know, was the first time I started to really look at my clients and the work that I was doing. Uh, this materialistic view of the world had it driven me to make a business that I could profit from, and I was, I was profiting pretty all right. I got probably four or five thousand from ghostwriting overall, and I'll explain why the number is so low. But with a two thousand dollar client, uh, so probably like six thousand actually, you know, in a probably a year span. But um, so not any real money at all. But I remember coming across, you know, coming into this newfound empathy and realizing I I built this business for selfish reasons. But but still, you know, when 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 those selfish reasons were satiated, that desire because I was more empathetic now to actually impact people's lives and teach them ideas that could infinitely change their lives had reignited and came to the surface once again. That subsidiary longing to get people to understand what it is that I wanted them to understand was what was reignited um and you know for all my life you know I thought marketing was the way to do it um I thought marketing and learning marketing techniques and you know structuring my sales messages and messaging and you know building a community through marketing was the way to do it um and so well, the, you know, the idea of teaching people ideas that could infinitely change your life, getting these ideas in my head, outside of my head, uh, was something that was, you know, now at the forefront of my mind. It had always been a principle of the business that I was building, always something I strive to do with the business that I was building. And it wasn't until I realized, you know, the vanity metric was, was, you know, the vanity of it was solved. You know, that idea came to the forefront. I realized with the business that I was running, I wasn't really doing that. Marketing had led me to not being able to transmit the ideas and make people become a diehard fan of the principles that I believe could change their life. All it led me to was transactions. I was making money from the business, but I wasn't changing anything. You understand what I'm saying? I was making money from this business that I was running, but I wasn't changing it. Like, I, you, you understand what I mean? Like, The business was purely transactional was the first thing that I realized. The business was purely transactional. It's like, you know, you have these ideas and beliefs in your head that, you, you know, like you say, you know, could infinitely change people's lives if they could just understand them and go on to become diehard fans of them and practice them and, and, you know, incorporate them into their daily routines and habits. Okay. And a lot of people think, okay, I'll build a business that transmits these ideas in people's heads and, you know, marketing is how I get these messages out into the world and how I get people to believe them. And they end up with a business like 7-Eleven. Think about 7-Eleven. What happens to 7-Eleven? You go to a 7-Eleven and you buy a product and then you come out from the 7-Eleven. Um, but when you come out from the 7-Eleven, are you a different person? Is the trajectory of your life changed? Are you, are, are you, are you different? No, they made a little bit of profit and, 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 and that's essentially it, right? They made a little bit of money and gave you a product and they changed your life to a degree because they gave you that product, but they didn't revolutionize who you are. What I anticipated with this whole ghostwriting thing is I wanted to build a business. Uh, like I said, this was a subsidiary goal at first. I wanted to build a business that was like click funnels, you know, 
you go into ClickFunnels and you come out, if you were nine to five before and you believed in all the false beliefs that the general mainstream of society believes, they all be erased by the time you get to the end of their value ladder. You'll be a funnel hacker, as they call it. Your whole identity and the principles that you believe and guide your life are completely changed. It's not a transactional business. It's a business that, whereas most businesses, including mine at the time, harvest capital to make a profit, ClickFunnels is essentially a business that harvests capital and pushes out culture. Harvest capital, and yeah, they make a profit, but they push out a social movement. They push out a new ideology. They're responsible for the creation of a mass movement. Um, uh, similar to how, you know, uh, instead of just being transactional, rather. You know, I wanted to build a business like Owen Cook had a business. You know, uh, he had a pickup business called RSD, Real Social Dynamics. And people would come into their business and, yeah, they would earn money. It'd be a transactional business. But they would harvest that profit and create a new culture. Whereas these people were original culture would maybe like white knights or incels or whatever the hell. This community on the other side would be entirely changed. Like they would have swag. They would be business owners. They would be making, they would be getting and meeting girls. They would be, a, they would be the cool guy now. Their lives and who they imagine themselves to be, their identity would completely be shifted as a result of this business. It harvests capital to create culture. And looking at the ghostwriting business that I was operating, I realized it wasn't doing any of that. And that that was the first time in my life that I realized that marketing might not be the variable that actually creates fans of an idea. That creates diehard marketing is not the vehicle rather let me say it like this that takes the ideas in my head and creates in society diehard fans of those ideas that creates social and mass movements of those ideas where people believe in them unlike anything else marketing wasn't the vehicle to do that it was 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 what i was realizing yeah these people are marketers but perhaps there was another variable that i was missing out on is what i started to notice and even beyond, you know, my own business, because I was empathetic and I, you know, a spotlight was shined on, you know, uh, on, on, on what other people are feeling. It's like that, that, that word sonder. I want to read you the definition of this word sonder because, you know, one, one of my favorite musicians at this current time, that's what his band, I guess it's called. No, sonder definition. Sonder is the the realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own. Yeah, that was essentially what it, you know what I was experiencing, and so, and not only I started to become more empathetic to the needs of even my clients because it wasn't just about making money anymore. And so when I looked at my clients and them coming to write books, I started to think to myself, okay, what is this? Like the meaning of the business was for me at first just to make money. But as soon as I became empathetic, the meaning of the business had began to extend. Okay. And I realized that, okay, these people are coming to write books, but one, what are they actually getting out of this? Are they getting a good solid product? And the answer to that, uh, you know, was, 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 it was kind of like, no. You know, they, they weren't getting a solid product. Um, ghostwriting had a lot of problems that, you know, weren't really the best for the actual authors at the end of the day. I was the writer, they were the author. It wasn't good for the actual authors at the end of the day. It wasn't the best vehicle and we could do better. It was the first thing, <coughs> first thing that I realized. Second thing I realized, oh crap, these people have fallen into the same trap as I have. Um, they're writing, a, you know, a lot of these people, these, these entrepreneurs, like, 
this was this was kind of what was the icing on the cake for me. I was looking at these people writing their books, right? And a lot of these people were successful entrepreneurs, you know, five, six figures businesses per month, per year, whatever it may be. They were making a lot of money. And a lot of these people, they were making a lot of money, right? But the problem that they were running into was that their business was transactional. Like one lady, she was a notary, uh, a public notary. She notarizes documents and officiates them for the government to, to, to take hold of. And another guy, he was running like, uh, I don't think it, I think it was like a marketing firm or something like that. But these people were making a lot of money. But their businesses, while they were making a lot of money, they weren't changing anyone's lives. They weren't making a lot of impact. They weren't building social movements um, and having meaning beyond just a product to people. Um, and a lot of people came to me to write these books because they believed that books and putting more stories into society were was the way to actually, you know, start to get people to, you know, rally around an idea rather than rather than just receive a product. They thought the way to, to actually push their ideas in society and make social movements and cults around their unpopular opinions was to write a book and push, it was essentially the marketing more, market more. And so they believed the same false vehicle that I believe. And in realizing that, I realized, wow, you know, one, you know, well, that, 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 that really, if you break it down, is the main reason why ghostwriting wasn't a viable option. What people wanted out of this business, they wouldn't get because they were going about it the wrong way altogether. What I realized, when I realized that marketing essentially wasn't the way to get our unpopular beliefs to be celebrated in society and to build subcultures around them, I realized that writing wasn't the way that these people would do it either because that is just writing and storytelling is just another facet of marketing. And so Essentially, I know this is like a, a soup of ideas and I'm trying to explain it the best I could. I don't really tell this part of the story or get this far in this series that often. But essentially what I'm explaining is marketing isn't the way to do it. And realizing that, you know, stories, story, you know, because even even looking at the business, like before I realized marketing wasn't the way to do it, I, I, I just thought to myself like, OK, stories are important because, you know, if they hear the story of this entrepreneur, uh, that came from their neighborhood, then they can adapt, you know, they can, they can, they can, they can learn from this story and become a different person. Right. I mean, that's, that's pretty much the idea behind marketing and writing books. You know, people think, okay, if these neighborhoods, kids that I, you know, the kids from the neighborhood that have an example of someone that, that has done it and they can read and learn about this example, then they can become like this person. But if you look at society, you realize there's no shortage of stories you know, that aren't the basketball player, that aren't the drug dealer, that aren't the whatever, 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 whatever. It's not stories that are driving these. You know, 1% of people will change. The early adopters will change on the basis of reading stories and understanding them. But the 99% of people, they've had plenty of examples and plenty of stories of people who are business successes and, you know, in, 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 in something other than what society demands of them in those neighborhoods. It wasn't stories and marketing that did it is what I realized, which marketing is just pretty much stories what those things do that they lead people to a transaction uh if they're geared to do that and otherwise they do nothing and so long story short this was the moment where i realized okay this business is not going to work while i was making money this business was not a viable option to actually carry out any sort of purpose of mine and so it was that moment where i decided okay i'm shutting down the ghostwriting business and i just completely just i just walked away from it because I wanted to know, okay, if 
marketing isn't the way to do it. If writing these stories isn't the way that, because I believe that building this company and putting these stories of successful entrepreneurs that didn't just sell drugs or whatever out into the world could change the world because people will learn about new ways of living. If writing stories isn't the way that we can change this world and change the lives of these customers, because I'm thinking about other people now, then there's no point in doing this even if it pays me because it's not about me anymore. It's not about making money. It's not about making a profit. It's about it's about the world and, and helping other people and showing other people that you love them and, and actually helping them. You know, that's why I mean by showing them that you love them. And so now that I was coming from a different frame of mind, a different paradigm altogether, I realized this profit isn't worth it. And I shut down the ghostwriting business. And um, yeah, I shut it down and just completely walked away the, the very day I realized that. And from there, you know, this is the next podcast, but what, I'm going to, what you want to hear in the next part of the series, I went on a completely wild search of if people aren't influenced and changed by marketing, then how is it that we do it? And what I uncovered from that journey is that there's a large difference between how internet marketers teach you that you can change people and how Silicon Valley billion dollar entrepreneurs who really change the world change people. Um, there is a complete and total difference. Uh, and it is not about marketing or anything like that. This journey took me down and deep into the trenches of my soul. You know, uh, in July of 2020, you know, I had my bank account negative so long. I lost my bank account. My credit score was a 400. Couldn't pay the rent, you know, living off government handouts and, you know, friends and family and, and, this part of the journey goes deep, 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 deep. And uh, this is the final part of the journey. So uh, tune into the next episode. Um, we're going to talk all about it, man. It, 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 what I discovered from listening to Stephen Larson and reading Zero to One by Peter Thiel and listening to Play Bigger uh, and, and going on this wild goose chase, listening to Steve Jobs. Oh, man, it's this moment where I'm listening to Steve Jobs in the shower where I finally realized, like, oh, that's the thing that makes the difference. Like, we're going to talk about it in the next episode. So where we end in this episode is I realized my business wasn't actually changing people's lives and helping the world. All this marketing was just leading to a transaction, but it wasn't actually changing people's mind and spirit and even putting out people's books into the world is not going to do that. And so if you want to learn how it is that you actually influence people and persuade them to adopt beliefs that can actually change their lives and therefore change the world if you do it, many of them at once, um, first off, you want to register for the Surviving the Council Summit on April 10th. It's going to be open for 48 hours only. If you miss it, you miss it. We're going to have billionaire, some billionaire, uh, billionaire or billionaires or near billionaires, business and cult leaders explain you how they've literally influenced the world, how they've changed people, like like literally how you change their behavior sets, uh, how you build, how they've built some of the biggest social movements and cultures in the world. It's going to be on that summit, survivingthecancel.com, April 10th. You can register for free for this virtual summit for 48 hours and listen to what these people have to say. It's amazing stuff. If you have ideas in your head that you know that you can change people's lives, you want to register for that summit. But um, yeah, I'm going to continue the story of where we went after shutting down this ghostwriting business in the next episode. My name is Dallas. This is Surviving the Cancel. I appreciate you for listening. Peace out.